Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we delve into the world of fund managers, discussing the ins and outs of fund management and tactical asset allocation with Nikki Eggers, Head of Investments, Mike Haslam, Head of Funds Distribution, and Jean-Paul Yeagers, Head of Asset Allocation. Welcome back to Word on the Street. Today, we're going to delve into what a fund manager actually does and how they do it. So we talk about fund managers quite a bit here in terms of how they manage our our customers' money. But I'm sort of interested to know more about what they actually do day to day. So today we've got Mike, our resident funds expert, to give us a bit of insight into this area. Um, And we're also going to delve into tactical asset allocation a little bit more. So Will and the team talk about this quite a bit. Um, But JP is here with us today um, to help explain a little more about what we mean by tactical asset allocation. So JP, you're you're head of asset allocation at Barclays. So this is really your area. Yes, indeed. So before we do that, um, JP, can you give us an overview of markets this week? It's It's been hectic yet again, no rest for the wicked. Yes, that's correct. So we've seen over this week that stock markets are up a couple of percent, but there were a number of themes that passed by for investors. So what we did see, first of all, is some relaxation of lockdown measures. So we see some countries further uh, relaxing those measures. And we've also had a couple of positive developments in the process for the search of a vaccine. The second item that that was on investors' mind has been the Bank of England has been in the spotlight. So the Bank of England previously has signaled that it's would not like to go negative with their policy rates. Currently being at 0.1, it would actually mean they don't have much further to go. But actually, this week we had some more members being quoted that it is something they might be, look, be might be looking into, and for investors this indicates there might be some further scope to reduce policy rates if this would if this would ha- if this were to happen. Although it's of course a little bit questionable the efficacy of just reducing it a little bit further below zero. Importantly, we also had uh, Merkel and Macron this week to announce a proposal for a 500 billion euro fund. Uh, funded from capital markets to provide grants to countries, member states that have been most impacted by this coronavirus. This is actually quite important because what it is, is it's grants instead of loans. And we see that it's jointly funded. So that actually means we're slowly getting closer to a joint debt in the Eurozone. But Merkel was quite quick to add that uh, it needs a consensus of the member states. And this will likely initially will get some resistance from the likes of Austria, the Netherlands and Sweden, given its grants instead of loans. Finally, we've also seen some increasing geopolitical tensions between the US and China uh, hitting the headlines. So all in all, given that over the past few months, we've seen that investor sentiment has been uh, rising and on, on those positive developments. And we've also seen asset prices being lifted. This week, we've decided to lower our holdings into stock market somewhat and rotate the holdings we have from debt in emerging countries into higher quality credit in developed markets in our multi-asset funds and accounts. And and just on that, JP, I mean, you know, when when you say reduce a bit, I mean, we're we're not talking here wholesale, get out and then wait for the right moment to get back in. Absolutely. So that's what we will touch on later, a little bit later in this conversation. This is within the tactical asset allocation. So we reduce slightly our equity holdings just a little bit 
given what we see in the near term happening. And uh, yeah, we can elaborate a little bit more on how we do that and how that happens and how we come up with those decisions. Perfect. So that's what keeps you busy every day. And Mike, Absolutely. turning to you, <laughs> and uh, as an old boss used to say to me, you know, Nikki, that's what we pay the big bucks for. <laughs> I can't tell you what I used to respond to him with. Um, so Mike, just turning to you now, you've been on on this, uh, on this podcast a number of times and, and shared with us some of the things that you hear from the fund managers that, that you speak to on a very, very regular basis. And, you know, that, that gives us fascinating insight. I like to sort of think I'd ha- like to have a go at it myself. But I guess you just make it sound very easy. But, but just can you share a little bit more with us about what the fund managers do? How do they go about doing the job that they do? Sure. Okay. Um, let me take you through then um, a typical day of a fund manager. And, and when we talk about a fund manager, remember, it's more than just one person. It's more than just the the, the, the lead portfolio manager. It's his or her team as well. There's usually um, an, an, a team of analysts behind them. So let's assume here a UK fund manager running a UK equity fund. So how does the day start? Well, to be honest, uh, the day has already started before we all get out of bed uh, because you've got Asia, Japan, other Far East market um, 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 have already been trading. They're coming to the end of their trading day and they give a really big, you know, a bit of a clue as to how maybe London will open that morning. So fund managers will be reading up about this over breakfast and on the way into work. Um, so you arrive in, into the office as a fund manager, usually by about seven o'clock, half seven. And the reason for that is because UK companies um, tend to report their earnings before the markets open at eight. So by seven o'clock, you're getting earnings coming out, being published. So they've got to be there to, to um, pour over the um, company numbers and what the management are saying. They will typically have a quick team meeting before the markets open at eight. So digest some of those numbers, have an earlier sort of an idea of what might happen. Uh, the market's open at eight, but during the first half an hour, um, the markets are usually quite volatile. There are less people trading at that time in the morning. So it tends to be an area where you kind of kind of avoid trading first thing. By nine o'clock, markets have steadied and you know, they're, they're a bit more sort of, sort of level-headed. But by nine o'clock, you're already into the um, um, teleconference and meeting agenda. So you've got teleconferences have started with companies who have made those announcements. Already they're doing an entire day speaking to fund managers and you're speaking to the chief exec, the um, finance director, etc. So they've all kicked off by half eight, nine. Um, and this also kicks off an entire day of meetings. So these uh, and fund managers are typically in and out of meeting all day. And um, I can come back to this later if you want. Things like internal meetings, company meetings, client meetings, etc. Um, then just when you think the morning's over, it's 12 o'clock. And by 12 o'clock in the UK, that's when most macro data is published so by macro data i mean things like inflation numbers unemployment whether the bank of england is going to change interest rates and so on and fund managers use this data to understand the health of markets that they're investing in then there's more meetings until the us market opens at half two then you've got two hours trading before the london stock exchange stops trading at half four now was that the end of the day Afraid not, because then you've got to write everything up. You've got all those meeting notes, those company results. You've got to make any changes to your target prices or views of those companies. And then before you know it, it's nine o'clock in the evening. The US market closes at nine. Now, this is really important because a lot of US companies report after the US market closes, which is different to the UK who report before. So therefore, you need to stay awake right into the night to digest those kinds of earnings because they're important because if you're... Uh, let's say, for, for instance, you are 
um, interested in Airbus, then results from Boeing will have a big impact on what goes on in that industry. So you've got to digest what goes on in the US. Then finally, before it's a cup of Horlicks and bed, you've got all your you've got to get all your notes together and ready for when all this all the markets open again the next morning at seven o'clock. Wow. So that that sounds pretty hectic. Um, and you mentioned meetings. I mean, what sort of meetings do, do, do these um, fund managers tend to have? Who are they meeting? Yeah, sure. Meetings, meetings all day long. First meetings, as I say, start in the morning, usually with the team meetings, usually about um, eight o'clock, half eight, assess the earnings results that have come up come out. Then there are more team meetings for decisions on whether to buy or sell um, companies that have reported and other news that's going on. Um, then other, and obviously as well, make decisions on which companies they want to hear more from, set up meetings with those companies. Uh, you've then got more internal meetings. You've got to remember that it's not just the fund managers. You've got uh, you've got you've got other teams that you swap ideas with. You've got a risk team. This is important within fund management. So this is a team that stress you know stress tests the portfolio, looks at what could happen in markets and what could happen in the fund. And the fund manager is really interested in taking that on board to make sure that they're not taking any kind of unintended risk in the fund. And you've got the company meetings as well, meeting the companies, whether it's the board members, uh, whether it's meeting in their offices or in the um, company's offices. Most of these are carried out by teleconference at the moment. Um, and then on top of that, you've also got as well meeting your investors. So fund managers come out, for example, and meet the Barclays team. And you mentioned there about meeting the companies. I mean, that, that sounds pretty fascinating, right? Because presumably they're sitting down face-to-face with, with the people that are running and governing big companies such as, I don't know, BP, Tesco, Vodafone, etc. So um, what, what, what do you hear from those kinds of meetings? Yeah, it is. The, um, the fund managers do get face-to-face meetings with, with each of the, you know, the chief exec, the finance director are usually the two most important. And when you think about it as a, you know, as a personal investor, you know, this, you know, this is something that you and I couldn't possibly do ourselves. We couldn't phone up the likes of Lord Sugar type people and ask for a meeting. But as a company that manages billions of pounds of pension money and investment funds, they get that privilege. And they can ask the board really intense questions as to what they're doing with the company, where they're going, etc. And when I mention the chief exec and the finance director, it's not just them. Because the fund managers also need about need to ask about their ESG agenda. So this is questioning the company about what they're doing. By ESG, I mean what they're doing with regards their responsibilities to the environment, to society and corporate governance, because this is a really, really important aspect of what of, of how a business is run. And in fact, companies these days have a dedicated corporate governance and stewardship team. And that's a person that the uh, or the team that the fund managers meet. Now, I was talking to an analyst at the UK's leading life insurance company this week, and she brought it to life for me. She said, um, as an individual, I have very little power you know, about how companies, you know, kind of how they would um, 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 drive their ESG agenda. But as somebody responsible, so as somebody as an analyst responsible for representing three trillion pounds worth of investors' money, I can really shape companies' attitudes towards responsible and ethical investing. And I think that's, a, that's, that's just fantastic. Yeah, and of course, we heard last week on Word on the Street from Ian and and Rob about the about the whole sort of framework around ESG and, and responsible investing. And of course, Ian brought to life a little bit about how how we use our sway with selecting fund managers in ensuring that they are that that they are using and employing consideration around ESG in, in the companies that they're selecting. 
coming back to the fund managers themselves, I mean, are they are they tending to meet every company that they invest in? Yeah, um, but also as well, it's not just the companies that they invest in. They also, so for example, you know, they they have to understand the entire market and these companies' competitors. So, for example, if you're investing in Tesco, how can you fully understand their prospects unless you understand what Sainsbury's are doing and Asda and Morrison's and Waitress and Little and so on and so on? The team is literally following every single company on the stock market, even though they may only hold 50, 60 companies in their funds. And and I mean, are they are they visiting all these companies? I mean, I guess a bit like taking a car for a test drive. Do you do you do that before you buy? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The, the term "kicking the tires" comes, you know, is is used a lot in the uh, fund management industry. But not all companies, you know. It, after all, there's not a lot you can really gain by just visiting a big office block, you know, where where their headquarters. But some companies, you do really get an interesting insight into visiting them. And I'm going to use an example here. Um, so, Ocado. Now, Ocado, you see the vans on the roads delivering groceries, etc., and you think, okay. Is that it? They, they, they basically, they used to deliver what Waitrose uh, groceries, now it's M&S. Um, is that what they do? Well, if that's the case, why is it then that Tesco shares are up 25% over the last three years and Ocado shares are up 700%? They've got to be doing something more than just, you know, delivering somebody else's groceries. Okay, well, imagine you're a fund manager then and you go and visit Ocado. Okay, so this this is the place you go and visit their um, uh, sort of distribution warehouses. So these are the places where all the boxes are packed and then loaded up onto the vans and then driven off around the suburbs. They invite you along to what they call their automated packing facilities, and these are eye-opening. They're phenomenal. Now, if you've not seen it, I would I would recommend going to YouTube and just search for for um, Ocado, and there you will find a video of their huge automated warehouse in Hampshire where you've got thousands of these little robots zipping around all over the place, picking out um, groceries and packing them into boxes, ready to be, um, ready to be um, um, and put on the back of the van. It's absolutely fascinating stuff. And if you were a fund manager visiting that site a few years ago, you would have taken away thinking, hang on a minute, this is not just a distribution company. This is a technology company. And the reason why Ocado now has, has share price has done so well is because they have now sold this technology uh, and they are using this, um, and they've sold it um, uh, right across the states as well. The number of big clients across the states who are picking up on this. So, but you only get that on these sort of occasions by actually going and visiting and having the kind of foresight to see where these companies are going. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. I'm, I'm definitely going to be looking that up on YouTube. Um, and and is it just the fund managers wanting to meet the companies, or or is it also the other way around? Is there something for the companies? Um, is it is there something in it for them to make themselves available to the fund managers? Do they mind spending time with them? Yeah, absolutely. Um, every company loves their investors and wants to talk to them as much as possible. Um, and I think today, in the environment where we are today, is a really good example. We are we are seeing more UK companies today trying to raise money, you know, getting through the situation where we are at the moment with lockdown, sales down, etc. So at the moment, we have companies contacting fund managers as they go through the process of raising money um, um, and asking the fund managers to um, um, to get involved. We also have as well IPOs, initial public offers offerings. So this is where companies are newly floated on the stock market. I think the last really big one we had in the UK was the Royal Mail quite a few years ago. Um, and this, again, where you'll get companies who will then approach fund managers um, um, asking them to invest. 
fascinating. I can tell there's a lot more to it than I ever thought and, and probably a good reason why it's good that I'm not trying to do it myself and, and getting getting these guys to do it for me. So Mike, just just from that perspective, what's the special source, right? Why 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 do you think it's it's worthwhile using these these professional fund managers to run money? Well, you know what, there's, there's, there's something else about it as well. It's not just about keeping an eye on the companies that you, know, that, that, that you have. It's looking, so I gave the example of Ocado. If you were a fund manager that had the foresight to see where Ocado could go, that's, that, that's, what you're, that's what you're buying into as well. That's why you're using the active managers to see how markets are changing and how companies are adapting and changing themselves. So here's a couple of other examples. Next time you're out and about, take a look around you. So, you know, what are you spending more of your money on? What are your children interested in? What, what are they, what, you know, what, you know, what do you see on children's TV advertising? What are other people buying more of? And find, you know, find that, look into it, look into own, who owns those products and services. Could be an interesting investment. I remember a fund manager once telling me how he noticed that JD Sports was the only place his children would ever want to go and buy trainers. Look at the share price. It's a... 40 times in the last 10 years. It's really dominated that space on the high street. Um, or Fever Tree. You must know that one, Nikki. Um, where, <laughs> <laughs> where was that? You know from? me. So actually, I prefer it neat. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, I mean, that's a phenomenal company. It has literally come from nowhere. It's sneaked up on Schweppes and has taken a massive market share in the tonic water and mixers market. I mean, we may all be drinking it now. But imagine if you were a fund manager and you had spotted it all those years ago as it first became popular in all those fancy artisan bars in Shoreditch, etc. And until recently, the company just selling tonic water was as big as the entire Morrison supermarket group. Phenomenal. And then, sorry, one more example here. And look at where we are today. Now, I was reading an article in The Guardian about three or four weeks ago about this huge surge in demand for bikes, so bicycles. Uh, so people in lockdown, maybe the new way of getting to work to avoid transport, etc. Um, have a look at this article. It was entitled, it was, the title of it was, Bikes are the New Toilet Paper. And it talks about how <laughs> difficult it is now to buy a new bike. So maybe that's an idea today that fund managers are looking into. It's about developing and always coming up with something new. So I guess that's the final part about being a fund manager. You've got the meetings, etc. But conscious that markets are always changing. Consumers change, tastes change. You've always got to be looking for the next new idea to invest in. I think it's a really interesting job. I, I love what I do talking to fund managers, but it is, yeah, believe me, it's an incredibly difficult job. Yeah, that's that's really interesting insight, Mike, and and you know, good a good reminder of why, you know, we 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 make it our business to scan the market for for those fund managers and and try to select the best of them, who in turn are looking to uh, to make the best investment decisions in in their funds. So turning back to you, JP, I mean, you, you talked at the top of the podcast about the change uh, that, that you've made very recently around asset allocation and specifically tactical, i.e. taking a bit of risk off the table. You know, we're not talking about selling portfolios outright. We're talking about small, small amounts of, of action around the margin to try to add value. But can you just explain in in slightly more scientific terms <laughs> what 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 you actually do with tactical asset allocation? Yeah, sure. So every investor has an asset allocation. So that means as an investor, if you have a portfolio with shares or bonds issued by governments or bonds issued by companies as your investment, 
what we then do is we make small changes to the proportion in those funds. So that actually means if we think the outlook for stock markets are very positive, what we will do is buy just a little bit more. And if we think the outlook is more negative, we sell down a little bit. But it is just making those small changes to the proportion of, of the various investments in a portfolio. So it's not about selecting the individual company, but it's much more on a higher level, how much stocks should an investor own. Okay. And, and how is that different to what Mike describes the underlying fund managers doing? So, well, f- yeah, first of all, we, we don't select any company. So we don't have to spend, as, as, as Mike just very, yeah, ex- very lively explained, is we don't have to do all the meetings with, with the various companies, with the boards, and assess what will be the tailwinds or the headwinds for specific individual companies. What we much more focus on is what's the general backdrop for stock markets. So we might, we will be interested in what's the general profits outlook. Is the economy doing well? Will interest rates likely go up or down? So it's much more a generalist view on the asset class itself than picking the individual stocks. Okay, that's clear. And there must be though some similarities. Where 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 do you see some of the commonalities? Uh, the, the, there is indeed some, some overlap. So if it's every investor, we have to look and view at at investments in in, in with different lenses. So, for example, if we see that stock markets fall significantly, um, as we did see with the recent viral outbreak, and then a lot of investors have become very pessimistic. Well, what we then try to assess is what's the mood being reflected in those asset prices. Well, a fund manager will have to do something similar. So how much optimism is currently reflected in the price of Ocado or JD Sports, as, as Mike just, just alluded to. So, so there are some assessments where, yeah, as a fund manager, you have to question a little bit of what is being reflected in the current asset price. That's something we do much more on a higher level of broadly in stock markets, how much optimism or pessimism is, is being reflected in, in, in stock markets. So there are indeed some areas where there will be overlap. And, uh, you know, what, what helps you to do this? What, what are the tools you use in order to, to make these kinds of decisions? As a team, we spend a lot of time researching economies. So instead of what Mike just alluded to, is instead of meeting the different companies and the boards, what we do is we focus much more on researching the economies, what's happening to companies in general, uh, what's happening to the to the economic backdrop. And, and what we do as a team is we have then developed checklists. So that will help us that we uh, avoid getting caught up in the mood of the day. So imagine, for example, that we're very concerned about profits given the current lockdowns that economies enforce. But then if we don't assess what's being reflected in asset prices, or actually that a lot of governments and central banks are helping uh, cushion some of the economic blow, we might miss the big picture. So what we do with checklist is just look at the various components and that will help us uh, yeah, making those small changes of those weights in, in, in investor portfolios. So this, this will be done by a team. So we have a team of seven experienced experts in, in Barclays who look at how to shift a little bit across the different assets. That's very comforting to know, right? Because everything we've talked about today is is quite a broad spectrum of activity. And you mentioned there about about experts, both internal and external, that we that we utilize. You know, trying trying to bring the best insights because because of course nobody can be expert in everything. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so look, hopefully that's provided some insights for our listeners. I think it will have, and we will pick up again next week with more word on the street. 
All investments can fall as well as rise in value, and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.